According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Let's return once again to uh, Luke 24. Luke 24. We read Mark 16 last week and don't really feel the need to go back there again. It's just a couple of verses, verse 12 and verse 13. And uh, it does not add significantly to our detail in Luke 24. Beyond the fact that it's uh, just a short two verses, and they're also questionable verses. Because remember, anything after verse 8 is in question in Mark chapter 16. I believe that uh, the most reliable manuscripts end the book at verse 8. And uh, in verses 9 and following, we've got a very confused manuscript tradition that uh, has no agreement with three different endings to the Gospel of Mark, the short ending, the long ending, the really long ending, and some blended combinations of, uh, of those three. So uh, in any event, I don't really feel compelled to go back to Mark 16 this morning. Let's stay in Luke 24. Let's look at these two guys on the Emmaus Road. Cleopas and the other one. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together this morning. Father, I thank you for the Emmaus Road, the two disciples, and uh, the Lord's message on that road, Father, and uh, what we get to glean from uh, from this episode. Father, uh, I just pray for your hand of blessing upon our study that you would open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. As we dealt with this last week, we got through three points of study. So that's... Uh, Half of our study. We've got four, five, and six coming up. Remember, two of them are the others of 24.9. When we read in 24.13, behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. So you know who they are. You know what they say. We use they and them rather generically sometimes. Um, but it is interesting because really the nearest antecedent would be technically disciples or apostles. In verse 10, uh, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. So we look at all our pronouns here, and we have two of them in verse 13. And it seems that the nearest antecedent would point back to apostles. Um, However... As we get down to verse 18, we find out that one of them was named Cleopas. And uh, we don't know any apostles named Cleopas, certainly not one of the 11. Uh, There were additional uh, people with the 11, for example, uh, called apostles when Jesus appeared to all the apostles. It was more than just the 11. Uh, But I think we're okay because in the context of this, if we back up even to verse 9, that they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. All the rest of what? The rest of the disciples, the rest of the, even the apostles beyond the eleven that uh, were there for that particular report. So I don't mind two of them being additional disciples beyond the eleven. All right, Beyond the eleven, one of which is named Cleopas and uh, the other one we don't know the name. Cleopas is not the same as Clopas. Some people blend them or try to identify them as the same. Cleopas is a Greek name. Clopas is an Aramaic name, a Greek transliteration of the Aramaic name Clopas. And uh, whereas Cleopas is a legitimate Greek name, it is the masculine form of Cleopatra. It's a shortened form of Cleopatros and uh, so forth. Although there are commentaries that try to blend uh, not only Cleopas with Clopas, but also with Alphaeus in the sense of uh, Mary, the wife of uh, Clopas, and then uh, the uh, son of Alphaeus. And they try to link 
that name there as well. The second disciple is anonymous, although that hasn't stopped the useless speculation, all kinds of ideas who that second guy was. It probably was simply Mrs. Cleopas or maybe his son. If it was his son, it's interesting. I think if it was his son, it would be named because um, there was a uh, later on there's going to be a bishop of of Caesarea who is going to be the son of Cleopas and uh, quite possibly uh, we might make an identification there in any event. Emmaus is a point two from last week. Emmaus is a village 60 stadia from Jerusalem and there's uh, three or four leading candidates for uh, today uh, that archaeologists have determined uh, maybe the most likely uh, location for it. We, uh, I read a little bit from the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. Did I not read from that article last week? I showed some maps, uh, the Google Maps. Um, I, I, I do think that the Palestinian town, the Arab town, uh, Kubeba, is the most likely. It matches the distance perfectly. Uh, it was on a Roman road uh, on the way to Joppa. Uh, there are um, buildings and structures uh, that go back to the first century at that location. I think it's preferable to the Emmaus Nicopolis location. Uh, although that has a lot of leading uh, supporters as well. Thirdly, they were prevented from recognizing Jesus. So let's take a look at it. Starting in verse 13, Luke 24, 13 through uh, 16. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, or 60 stadia. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken a place. Everything that was happening all the happenings of their day. I'm gonna, we're going to expand upon that quite a bit today as we understand what are the happenings of, uh, of their day, what are the happenings of our day. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus uh, himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So he shows up, starts joining into their conversation, starts uh, asking them questions, and they don't know it's him. They don't know it's him. And uh, he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And we have a progression of uh, vocabulary as it relates to their uh, verbal interchange. Uh, we, they are talking. They are discussing. In verse 14, they're talking. In verse 15, they're discussing or actually arguing. And then in uh, verse 17, they are exchanging words. What are these words you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And uh, I find it remarkable that Luke, in his narrative, provides such a, a spectrum. He provides a, a, an assortment of talking terms. So they're talking, they're arguing, and they are exchanging words. And it seems like that exchange is, is uh, becoming more heated the longer it proceeds. And they stood still, looking sad. His question caused them to stop with a look of sadness on their face. So one of them named Cleopas answered and said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem? You know, how clueless are you? You've been under a rock for the last uh, seven days, or at least the last three days. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Again, happened. We have happenings. And they were talking about the things that had taken place. So, you know, what causes something to happen when it happens? When things take place, do they just take place on their own? Uh, who's in charge of all this anyway? And uh, when things happen, and when you're talking about your happenings, do they make you happy? Same word, okay, or same root, I should say. Uh, happenstance. What is it that causes you to be happy? Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll break that all down. And so he says, what things? And so they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him. Notice, the chief priests, our rulers, delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us, when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not find. All right, so here they are. 
And uh, they accuse him of being ignorant. Look at their ignorance, <laughs> right? The women said he was alive again, and they saw angels. But, you know, a couple of our men went and checked it out. and There was a missing body, all right, but they didn't see any angels, and they didn't see him. So, you know, probably can't trust those women anyway. <laughs> all right, so here we are, and this is what we're dealing with. Now, they were prevented from recognizing Jesus. Uh, there's an idiom at work here where their eyes were restrained. It's a passive imperfect of croteo, uh, with eyes as the object of the verb. So their eyes were restrained. Their eyes were held. I don't think it was anything um, intrinsic to Jesus and his body. It does not appear to be a capability of his body as it uh, was a feature of, uh, of their eyes that were affected. This is similar to Martha in John chapter 20. Remember, Martha was likewise prevented from recognizing Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. She kept begging him, you know, tell me where you move the body. I'll take care of it. And uh, coming up in chapter 21 of John, the disciples also are going to have a similar experience. He's going to be walking along the beach and uh, they're out there fishing and they're not going to recognize as him until, uh, until they bring in this great haul of fish. And then John finally dawns on John who it is. And uh, so forth. John 21, verses 4 through 7. We read this last week as well. But just to refresh our thinking on this. They went out fishing and got into the boat. That night they caught nothing. When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you have not had any fish, or you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast. Remarkable, of course, they don't know it's him yet. They're not casting in obedience to their Lord's direction, all right, because they're clueless as to who this is. But they were doing as they were told, and uh, they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. That was the moment when it dawned on Peter, or when it dawned on John. Not yet dawned on Peter yet, or any of these others, okay? It's not all 11 of them here, it's just a handful um, mentioned there in verse 2. So, what is it that restrained his eyes? What is it that kept these uh, folks, Martha and Peter and John and these two on the Emmaus Road, why were their eyes withheld or restrained? All right, um... And why questions don't always have answers. (laughs) But there is uh, interesting ministry opportunity the Lord has prior to the recognition and then in in the aftermath of the recognition. Notice, in the aftermath of the recognition with Martha... He has the opportunity to to speak to her in truth and love, to minister to her, to encourage her, and so forth. Likewise, in the aftermath of the recognition with these disciples on the Emmaus Road, he just disappears. And the moment they recognize, hey, this is Jesus, because he's breaking the bread, and 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 then their eyes are opened, at that point he disappears. With the disciples here in John 21, as soon as they realize that it's Jesus, uh, you know, Peter jumps into the sea and they, they go to shore and they have breakfast with him. And there's ministry that takes place once they recognize it's him. So anyway, there's a dynamic at work here and it, we probably have more answers or more questions than answers at this point. Is this an ability or characteristic of the resurrection body? You know, is this, is this an ability that we're going to have in the resurrection? 1 John 3, 2, I don't believe it is because I, I believe that it was a work of divine power in restraining other people's eyes. Uh, don't know that that's an ability or characteristic of our resurrection body. Will we be able to affect the eyes of, of mortals? Um, or when we, when, we do, when we are manifest in this material universe, um, do we have control over how we appear? Um, in any event. Okay, this is probably the one reason why it's worth looking at Mark 16. Uh, It does use an interesting expression where it says, after that he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. All right? Add that to our puzzlements. Add that to our ponderings. Once we are spirit beings in resurrection and glory, as we are manifest in this physical universe, um, 
What form are we manifest in? What form do we take in the resurrection? What form did Lazarus take when he was in Abraham's bosom? What form did the dead man take in, over on the torment side when he wanted Lazarus to dip his finger and cool his tongue? And uh, he lift up his eyes. Okay, Fingers, tongues, eyes, bosom. We have, we have body parts that are mentioned in that chapter in Luke for disembodied spirits that are in Sheol. Okay? And yet those souls, Lazarus' soul, the, the dead man's soul, the, the rich man's soul, were, were, were shaped somehow okay, to have body parts. Anyway, so we, these are the things we ponder. 1 John 3, 2 says, we don't, It has not yet appeared what we shall be like. So we have to have a certain amount of humility, a certain amount of relaxed mental attitude to say, we don't have the whole story yet. We don't know what it's going to be like. But we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And so we're, we're being molded in conformity to him. Okay? Our resurrection body is going to be in conformity to his resurrection body. So when we see he disappears, he turns invisible, he, he enters rooms without opening the door. Okay? The, door. the windows are shut, the doors are locked, but boom, Jesus is there. Okay? Does that mean he teleported in? Does that mean he passed through the wall? Okay? That's the you know the, the superpower of phasing, walking through the wall, or the or teleportation, okay, or invisibility. Was he just invisible the whole time, and he walked through the open door with them when they walked through the open door, and then the door closed, and he was already inside the room, okay? How did he get in that room? How did he disappear from their side here? So because as soon as their eyes are open, he disappears out of their side. It says. So, um, uh, verse 31 of Luke 24. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. How does that happen? Is that an ability or characteristic of the resurrection body? In other words, is that going to be a feature that you and I will have available to us in the resurrection? Or was uh, was Jesus exercising divine power? Was this part of his assignment in his 40 days of resurrection ministry? Okay? So, you had a question related to that? Oh, we'll be wherever he is forever. That's right. Yeah. In any event. When he's caught up in the air at the ascension, does that mean that he can fly? Does that mean we can fly? Okay? Did he actively rise or was he passively caught up? Okay. I think we can find verses each way. Uh, you know, are we going to be able to fly? At what point do we intersect between, you know, can we race? My friend Ari Mailer and I, we've, we've had these discussions since we were 10 years old. All right, And uh, we, we, we have already agreed that in the resurrection we're going to race. We're going to race you know, across the, the galaxy. Okay? We're going to race from one solar system to the next. And that's, uh, that's just something we've talked about since we were kids. Because there's never been a foot race on this earth that I've ever beaten Ari Mailer at. He's the, the fastest kid, and I was always a slow, dumpy kid, and I never once beat him. So I took great comfort in the fact that in the resurrection, it was going to be the other way around. That the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And so, yeah, he can beat me in every foot race as a kid. That's fine. Wait till that resurrection body, buddy. I'm, I'm there. All right. <laughs> in any event let's get to their conversation so is, is it a trivial question I, you know yes and no we'll find out when we get there um, but in the meantime um, we ought to at least have an anticipation of the things to come because our attention is supposed to be focused on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and that's where we are alright point four their conversation was on the current events their conversation was on current events. We're going to spend some time with this because I think this is, this is where the impact of this episode hits anyway. They're involved in a conversation and Jesus joins in. You know, if we have a pattern here, then we've got something that we can imitate. We can, we can identify the fact that, you know, um, wherever, we're at Starbucks, we're at the mall, whatever we're doing, and here's people in a conversation. And there's uh, an opportunity not to uh, you know, be intrusive or butt into their business or 
or uh, whatever. But you know, in within the the context of a public setting, to to join into a public conversation and and uh, inquire as to their as to what they're dealing with. And in particular, when we find that what they're dealing with is off track, <laughs> then maybe we've got some answers and we can contribute. All right. Current events. Happenings. Described it in this way in verse 14. They were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. Things taken place. Subpoint A. These things which had taken place are happenings. Are happenings. And we all have happenings. Things take place. Every day something happens. Unless you just stay home and don't, don't turn on anything. and don't know, Things happen, you don't know about it. Things which had taken place. And we got a number of idioms. I think the two in particular, the Sumbino vocabulary and then the Gidami vocabulary, I think they're useful. I don't want to take a whole hour looking at all these verses. But just as a concept... Two things to keep in mind as a concept. We can discuss the things that happen generically as happenings. But if we go too far in that, then what what have we done? We've lost sight of the fact that things just don't happen. God is at work. Right. When, When you talk about things that happen versus people who do stuff then you, you, you are opening the door for um, misunderstandings and you're opening the door actually for misapplications. It happens all the time. I think it's a common device of, of our adversary. Because then uh, you just start thinking, well, okay, an earthquake happened. A tornado hit. You know, you know the stuff happens and, and we're not considering that there was a cause or there was a mind uh, God chose for it to take place and there's a purpose in it. If something just happens and then there's no, it's like the universe just happened, you know, big bang, boom, here we are. There's no purpose for it. There's no reason for it. There's certainly not any authority I have to submit to. Okay. And so the world likes to talk about things in a, in a generic neutrality, in a passive voice with a a null uh, cause. And I find that quite interesting. So there it is in verse 14. Again, verse 18 are you unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? You know, if something happens, well, nobody's fault really, just it happens. Okay? We talk about chance. We talk about, and, and the word happenstance, right, is connected to chance. It just happens. Okay? It, you know, nobody's fault. You didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. It just happened. Okay? You know, a collision just happened. Well, no, there was a driver here. There was a driver here. There are causes. It may not have been intentional, but there are there are causes for what happens. So there's happenings in verse 18. There's uh, happenings in verse 21. We were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since all these things happened. All right, so when things happen, um, we have the idea of at the time, beforehand, afterwards. Can't control what's already happened. Once it's happened, well, can't stop it, it's happened. And we're past that now. Okay? Something happened. Anyway, we're, we can have a little bit of fun with it, I suppose. Uh, the different vocabulary. Uh, Sumbino only has seven New Testament uses. Uh, and then Ginnemai. Now, Ginnemai has 622 uses. That's a ton. But usually, Ginnemai means to become, to be, to exist, to become, to come into existence, or to become something you were not previously. Um, there are 60 times where it's translated happen in the New Testament, where something came to be, right? Now it came about that something happened. Something became. Something ginnamide. So ginnamide is used for that. Sumbino is used for that. The idea of something just happening. Okay? Now, 
what I want to really stress is that for you and I, nothing just happens because we have divine viewpoint. Okay? Nothing just spontaneously comes into existence. Nothing. If it, if it exists, it exists by the will of God. Okay? God is the only I am. God is the only existent one without cause, without uh, you know, the, the necessary being of the universe. Everything outside of God comes about. John 1 tells us, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has ginamide come to be of all that has come to be. Jesus Christ is in control. He controls the ages. He controls the world. He controls. He is the, the agent of God the Father's good pleasure that, that runs this place. Okay? So things just don't happen. I think if it, it's only the atheistic worldview that just views chance views random chance, views the fates. You know, the Romans were very um, superstitious. And the Greeks were all about the fates. Stuff just happens. All right? It's the will of the gods. It's mysterious. We have no control. (laughs) No, stuff doesn't just happen. God the Father unfolds his plan. And so events that you are uh, aware of, things that maybe affect you, um, that you have a connection to in terms of current events, uh, God and the Father's got a purpose for all of it. And we need to orient to where we are. We need to orient to, to uh, you know, what's going on around us. If our nation continues to plunge into the godless direction it's going, will believers start to come under conviction that it's time to, time to emigrate? Is there another generation of pilgrims that's going to go find a Plymouth Rock somewhere? You know, I think it'd have to be off this planet because, uh, <laughs> you know, where, where is there left to colonize for, uh, for uh, freedom of, of conscience? Zoe, my daughter wants to go to uh, New Zealand. Well, anyway, anyway, I don't believe it's wrong. These men are not wrong for discussing their current events. Elsewhere, Jesus says, can you discern the sign of the uh, seasons and you, you cannot discern the signs of the times? You say, you know, it's a red sky at night and you, you, you can understand the, the things that you can see in, in natural revelation. So it's not inappropriate to, to uh, be aware of your happenings. Um, but you want to be accurate with respect to your happenings. Okay? Now, soon, bino. Uh, you have soon together with bino to descend or to go down, uh, to fall, you know, what's going down? <laughs> what's falling down together? Okay, uh, the happenings. When, when, when circumstances all come crashing down together, what do you have? Well, you've got, your, you've got your conditions, your circumstances of this day and age. And so there's some interesting uh, applications there. Um, we ought to be able to shoot through these pretty quickly. Matthew 10.32, and none of them really pertain, I don't think, to a whole lot of what we're dealing with here today, but seven uses of sumbino. Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And so there it is. The first one I turn to, and it makes no sense to me. Sumbino. Take place? Yeah. All right, Luke twenty four fourteen. I try to double check every single one of these before I get in the pulpit, and then invariably I find one. That's the passage where we are today. The things that must take place. Acts three ten. All the people saw him walking and praising God. They healed this guy that was laying there lame. And uh, they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. At what had happened to him. But what a, what a generic way to phrase that. It doesn't say that they were filled with wonder and amazement at Peter's work of service as unto the Lord or, or the, the work of divine power through Peter. It's just what had happened to him. 
It's left in a neutrality of, well, just something happened. Okay? And you can discuss things in a, in a neutral way, but when you do, you're failing to mention the active agent of what God's done. Okay? You know, you talk about, well, you know, I got saved today. Or how about, you know, if that's a, in a passive neutrality way, you're not saying who did it? Who saved you? How did they do it? Acts 20 and verse 19. Uh, Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials, which came upon me, happened to me, through the plots of the Jews. There's an agent, through the plots of the Jews. But uh, trials, tears and trials, which came upon me. Trials came upon me. Trials happened. You know, do things happen? Sure, things happen. Yeah, but realize if we if we just talk about them in a neutrality sense, then we're really just discussing things in the same mindset that that an unbeliever could could uh, you know just stuff happens. Well, I you know uh, somebody talks about well they developed cancer. Well, how did that happen? Who put that there? Well, it just happens. You know, it just happens. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. It just happens. Okay, That's not our language. Our language is God the Father assigned me a physical health test. I just learned about it today, but He assigned it to me before the foundation of the world. It was a part of His plan from Alpha to Omega. It's a part of what He is doing to prepare me for glory. I just became aware of it, you know, in a certain way. So, Anyway, this is just the kind of language. And, and I'm not saying it's bad or it's wrong. I think it's probably normal. We all do it. But when we do it, maybe we can, uh, we can rephrase certain things. And we can remind ourselves. That's the, that's the kind of mindset an unbeliever has. First so Corinthians 10.11 These things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These things happened. What things? Well, the things are described there in uh, their rebellion, the wilderness generation, the Exodus generation. All right, 1 Peter 4.2 and 2 Peter 2.22. 1 Peter 4.2. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you there it is the strange thing were happening to you well how does this happen okay don't don't count that as something weird you're part of the plan of god he's going to test you it's not just well something happens okay see and the reason why i think it's worthwhile is that idea of happy people are are serving happy that's their idol happy i want to be happy that's why I got to quit my job. That's why I got to divorce my wife. That's why I got to move here. That's why I got to, you know, because I deserve to be happy. And all the human viewpoint of happy, that's, that's the huge idol, right? And uh, the idea of happy comes from the same idea of happen, happenstance. It's just all the random circumstances. And if good stuff happens to you, you're happy. Hey, I won the lottery today. It just happened. I'm happy. Or my tire went flat. It just happened. I'm not happy. Okay? I'm either happy or not happy based on the happenings. Based on the happenings. And the happenings change every day, moment to moment. The happenings, some of them are pleasant, some of them are unpleasant. Just drifting on my happenings. So I'm going to stay drunk as much as I can or stoned as often as I can so that as all these happenings unfold, I can stay happy. <laughs> okay? Talk about a sad way to live. That's the world we live in. Because they want to be happy. Okay? Nothing about producing the true joy, the fruit of the Spirit, the joy we have in fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. It's not happy by the world's terms, it's joy in God's terms. Big difference. Okay. Second Peter two twenty two. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, so 
a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. It has happened to them. Okay. Can I ask you a question about that verse? Uh-huh. A dog turns to his own vomit. I was discussing that with Robert last time, and he, she would actually think that God ever called a believer a dog. So I, I'm just trying to understand that verse. Well, that's what a dog does. I know a dog does that. So that's why the that's why a dog is used as a as the metaphor. And, you know, we're not called sows either. We're not called pigs either. Uh, They're both unclean animals. Yeah, they're both unclean animals. But the context of this passage is a warning of believers, unless you're a Calvinist. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The Calvinist denies that this person was ever saved in the first place. Right. Because under Calvinism, you can't fall. Under Calvinism, if you fall, then you weren't ever saved in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. All right, and then Ginnemai. Uh, we won't go through all those. Uh, in fact, I only picked out the ones in Luke because um, there's 60 of them. I mean, there's 622 of them in the New Testament, 60 that apply to, uh, and they're translated happen. And, uh, and, and Luke's very fond of the verb Ginnemai, and so you have it there in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 6, all the way through. Um, Luke uses the verb genomai quite a bit, and so uh, we don't have to uh, we don't have to look at those. But here's what they're talking about: they're talking about the things that are happening, the things that are happening, and so we can do that. We can talk about what's happening. We can talk about um, you know the weather. The weather happens. We can talk about uh, uh, the economy. The economy happens. You know, stuff happens. What happens in the news? Um, things happen. But if all we're doing is just talking about what happens, what are we really talking about? What makes us different than the unbeliever? You know, and in some cases, when the happenings are repeatedly sadder, 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 then current events is not an edifying thing to discuss. If you're leaving it in a neutrality of just, well, it happens. When you turn it to the will of God and the purpose. Now they try to do that. They try to do it because they say, you know, we were hoping that it was he who was going to not uh, redeem us, not take our place, not pay for our sins. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They're thinking politically. They're thinking geopolitically. And what's interesting is that's exactly what he did. But they think that he didn't, because he died. He did redeem Israel. He paid the price necessary. And then he died. So if all you're going to do is talk current events and not discuss the will of God, not discuss uh, the, the plan and purpose of God, not discuss where you fit into that, not to discuss the divine viewpoint whereby you keep yourself on in perspective, then there's no difference between you and the unbeliever talking about the weather. All right? In the early church, happenings were to be accepted as the will of God for your life. In other words, if it happened, God has a purpose for it. He caused it to happen or He permitted it to happen. And uh, I think these are identical. Uh, Didache and the Epistle of Barnabas. Now, neither one of these is Bible, but understand that this is the early church and this is, these are believers, pastors, church fathers who were shaped by what was written in the New Testament. They were shaped by what was written in the New Testament. I think it's reflective of what their attitude was. Didache 3.10 this larger for you here. All right, so we're clear. This is not Bible, okay? But these are men who were shaped by the New Testament, who were taught by the apostles and those who followed the apostles. Uh, He talks about being humble. For the humble shall inherit the earth. Be patient and merciful and innocent and quiet and good and revere always the words which you have heard. Okay, The DDK, these are the teachings. This is Bible teaching based upon Scripture. 
Do not exalt yourself or permit your soul to become arrogant. Your soul shall not associate with the lofty, but give, but live with the righteous and the humble. Okay, I believe this uh, preacher is preaching like I might have been preaching out of the book of Romans a while back. Uh, then he says, accept as good the things that happen to you, knowing that nothing transpires apart from God. There's a perspective. Okay, Accept it as good. It may not be good, but accept it as good because it will work together for good. God's directing it. God's permitting it. God's going to use it. So accept it as good. The things that happen to you. Vocabulary like what we're studying today. And then the epistle of Barnabas. You must not covet your neighbor's things. You must not become greedy nor be intimately associated with the lofty, but live with the, with the humble and righteous. Accept as good the things that happen to you, knowing that nothing transpires apart from God. Do not be double-minded or double-tongued. Be submissive to masters and respect and fear as to a symbol of God. Anyway, it's not Scripture. But you can see clearly how in the early church, believers were shaped by this biblical thinking. And I appreciate that. All right. Here's your pattern. Point C. Talking, discussing, and exchanging words. Talking, discussing, and changing, exchanging words. If you're reading the Holman, right? Dan probably is. He likes the Holman. Discussing, arguing, and disputing. (laughs) <laughs> there's your there's your trio you've got discussing in verse 14 arguing in verse 15 and disputing in verse 17 new king james talked conversed reasoned they actually have a fourth term in the new king james talk converse reasoned and conversation okay now when words are multiplied what do you end up with <laughs> more words that's right do you actually have any answers there's uh there's a there's a, a fallacy that believes that uh, the the greater the words the uh, the better <laughs> you know the uh, the logic there that just uh, if you can't uh, fool them with your or if you can't convince them by your reason then just overwhelm them with the the sheer volume of your um, wordiness but see all of it was without faith. All of it was without faith. He rebukes them. Look at his rebuke. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. None of their conversation was shaped by faith. He calls them fools. They are slow of heart. Slow of heart. Interesting phrase. I think it's one step short of hardness. What happens in your arteries before they harden? What happens to your heart before it hardens? Does it slow down? We'll discuss that. It's coming up, I think. Yeah, that's point. That's in the next point. But none of this conversation was edifying. It was all without faith. If it's not faith, it doesn't edify. Talking, discussing, exchanging words. Talking, discussing, exchanging words. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, this pattern, by the way, becomes uh, the model in many... Um, church groups today i mean this is what it's all about you just get around you chit chat you talk about you what do you think what do you think what do you think and we just talk about uh the different aspects of what we're learning all right is there value in that and that becomes a substitute becomes a substitute for actually humbling yourself and listening to what the lord has to say look what he does here he puts an end to their chit chat he um he starts to explain to them He says, was it not necessary, verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So he puts an end, he stops the the chit-chat, the back and forth, the conversation, the what do you think, the what do you think, the what do you think. They had gone from talking to discussing or arguing. I I like argue, that's better. Actually, I think, the Holman's the best rendering of this passage, my favorite. They went from discussing to arguing to now disputing. <laughs> and neither one of them has any answers. 
So what are they doing? Right. They should be listening to Jesus. He has all the answers. Or if not him, find somebody that's got answers. You know, why are they going to Emmaus anyway? If they'd have stayed in the upper room, they could have learned more from Peter and James and John and they could have uh, continued to, to be in prayer. They decide, oh, we're going to leave Jerusalem, we're going to go to Emmaus. Doesn't say why they were going to Emmaus, but it's interesting. And in all the discussion, got them nowhere. All the discussion got them nowhere. You know, you listen to 15 hours of talk radio every week, and where does that get you? Nowhere. But they talk about a lot. Everything that's wrong. What could be better? All right. It was all without faith and did not edify. And so I ask myself, you know, people want to do a home Bible study. They want to do a cell group and whatever they want to do. That's fine. you got liberty to do all kinds of stuff. But what are you going to do and what model are you going to follow? And is it going to edify? The pattern for communication is with spirit-empowered communicators and spirit-empowered listeners for the Word of God to be taught with authority. You know, the rabbinic teaching of the day was just about the opinions of men. You know, Gamaliel says this, and Shealtiel says that, and Shammai says this, and Hillel says that, and, and uh, uh, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and they, they, they're giving opinions and rulings about different things. Jesus comes, he starts teaching with authority. Jesus starts teaching saying, thus saith the Lord. And the people in Jesus' day were just, wow, we never heard this before. We never heard this before. He teaches with authority, not like the scribes or the Pharisees. All right, so at a certain point, you ask yourself, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And you realize, I'm not going to engage in a uh, non-edifying, apart-from-faith process that doesn't get anywhere. Just sharing opinions and stuff? What's that? I'm going to plug in to God's plan and program based upon gifted communicators, based upon God's command, let he that has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit communicates through the local churches. All right. Point D. These disciples had partial knowledge, but no understanding. They had partial knowledge, but no understanding. You know, we're commanded in Proverbs to acquire wisdom and with our wisdom to acquire understanding. We want to learn. We want to acquire knowledge, gnosis. But gnosis needs to become epinosis. It needs to become a full knowledge. Epinosis needs to become an oida. It needs to become a, um, and a sophia. Okay? We want to acquire the wisdom with what we know. And uh, I don't know, sometimes I think there's nothing worse than Partial knowledge, <laughs> okay? Where uh, a believer knows just enough to be dangerous. Particularly when he has the partial knowledge minus any understanding as to how it connects with the plan of God, how it connects with the will of God. That's why we study. That's why we learn. We present ourselves approved to God. So what are the things they understand? What are the things that, well, they know he died. They got that. They know he was buried. They got that. They know Jesus the Nazarene. Well, they knew where he was from. He was from Nazareth. That meant he was a Galilean. Does that mean anything? Yeah. Does that make a difference? Okay. Are we wrapped up in that kind of thing? You know, I'm a, I'm a Seattleite. I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. Okay? Now, does that, does that um, hurt my reputation? <laughs> it means I'm addicted to coffee. It means I didn't see much sunshine growing up. I had a lot of rain. Um, <laughs> most Seattleites are atheist, godless, you know, tree-hugging communists, yeah. 
But but with divine viewpoint, do you care? You know, one pastor is a city kid from Seattle, another kid's a you know a farm boy from Kansas, right? Yeah, for you and I, the the birth and the church age and and Jew or Gentile, none of that's it's all irrelevant in Christ. That's that's the best part. But to their culture, where you grew up, your your tribe, your clan, your family, it's more important than you. And even today in many parts of the world, your clan name, your family name is more important than your personal given name. Because you're part of a family. You're part of a clan. You're upholding the honor of your family. You're taking your family into the next generation. Anyway, Jesus of the Nazarene. All right. Bob the Seattleite. Jesus the Nazarene. Why does that, why does that matter? Who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. Who did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. A prophet. When, when, they, when the Pharisees went to check out John the Baptist, what did they ask him? You know, are you, are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? He's not just a prophet. He's the Messiah. Prophet, priest, and king. The son of David. That's not mentioned here. Jesus the Nazarene. A prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. How the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Now that looks political, that looks earthly. There's nothing in there about the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. What a distinction, right? Now if, if you just look at that, hold your finger there in, in Luke 24, 20, and look at how Peter preaches this in Acts 2. Look at how Peter preaches this with respect to uh, with respect to the crucifixion of Jesus. Acts two twenty two and twenty three. Men of Israel, listen to these words: Jesus the Nazarene. Okay, same title that those men used. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now that we could think of that as a prophet, mighty in word and deed, but it adds to the idea that yes, he's doing mighty things, but those are attestations to you, right? God is testifying that he's that this man is his messenger. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. That's quite a bit different than what these two men are saying. Uh, you know, delivered over by the, the chief priests and rulers, delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. See, it, it adds the divine component. It, it demonstrates the plan of God. It shows that God's in control. And it didn't stop there. It went on to teach the resurrection. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. If you're giving the gospel to somebody, right, you're going to tell them Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but then also say, guess what? He didn't stay dead. <laughs> he died for our sins and he rose from the dead it's so important because the value of his death is, is our payment to pay our penalty for our sin but then raised from the dead he, he now is risen he's now seated in the heaven with God the Father he now ever lives to make intercession for us he is our priest our high priest our savior we walk in that newness of life so, in any event, I think there's a, there's a difference between Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and these guys, their message here in Luke 24. There's no resurrection. They're very skeptical of the resurrection. Well, these women said the tomb was empty, but, and they said that angels said, you know, but how reliable is that? When angels said, that, and, you know, women said that angels said, and now there's these two guys on the road. They're saying what the women said, what the angels said. Now it's third hand by the time you get to, to Jesus hearing this. And you, you can't trust that. How do you trust what they say, what they say, what they said? So they have a partial knowledge, but no understanding. 
I'm calling him a prophet. Um, we were hoping, not anymore, but we were, notice the difference between we are hoping and we were hoping. We were hoping, but not anymore. We don't hope that anymore. We've lost that hope. We were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping. We were hoping. Not anymore. He died. He died and we, just had, we lost our hope. We don't hope that anymore. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since all these things happened. So, they have a partial knowledge but no understanding. They knew Jesus died on a cross, but they failed to appreciate its spiritual significance. They knew Jesus died on a cross, but they failed to appreciate its spiritual significance. And this is, to me, is a huge part of why the Emmaus Road episode is useful for us today. We encounter this, this, this attitude all the time. You know, you talk to folks, unless they're Muslim, they're going to believe that Jesus died on a cross. Yeah, okay. They've heard that story. But why did he die on a cross? Well, you know, jealousy. Political fear. You know, all the earthly reasons in the world, similar to what these two men on the Emmaus Road would be voicing. Well, you know, the chief priests were jealous. They put him to death. Jesus died, you know, like every other religious leader that comes along. Buddha was misunderstood. You know, all these others. He was mistreated. Other people got mistreated. Muhammad was mistreated. He was driven out of Mecca, had to flee to Medina, then, you know, returned back with an army. It happens. Religious leaders just get misunderstood. Sometimes they get killed. And the worldview today on who Jesus was, well, he was a good teacher. He was a moral teacher. He was a good man. You can find all kinds of unbelievers today that will tell you that Jesus died on the cross. But do they appreciate, do they understand the spiritual significance? Do they know the reality for what was taking place on the altar of his soul? Of course not. They heard about the resurrection, but remained skeptical. They heard about the resurrection, but they remained skeptical. Well, somebody said something about it, but a couple guys checked it out and didn't see anything. <laughs> they heard about the resurrection. We had a visitor here a few Wednesdays ago. What was it? Maybe a month ago. Guy came in here and a uh, salesman, and I invited him to stay for class. You got here at 9.55. You know, when you show up at 9.55 and class starts at 10, uh, you know, not that I'm hostile to salespeople, but I just don't have any time, okay? You're welcome to stay for class. I can talk to you after class. You know, we're, and, it, and we were talking about the, the resurrection. We are talking about uh, the, the, the empty tomb. Said, yeah, stay for class. We're, we're talking about the empty tomb. Resurrection Sunday. And uh, the salesman was like, oh, I've heard of that, I think. Who was it? Who was it that, that was in the tomb and came out of the tomb? Jesus, our Savior? <laughs> Have a seat. Okay. No, he didn't stay. They heard about the resurrection. But come on. Really? The flood? Really? Noah? Really? Moses? Really? Creation? Really? Come on. Science tells us it was all Big Bang. Science tells us, you know, we used to be monkeys. Evolution. That's fact. Okay? The world we live in has a mindset. That's how they think. We need to begin with Moses and start explaining Scripture. Next week we'll come back to this and we'll uh, come back to Jesus' name calling here. O foolish men and slow of heart. And then he starts to teach them doctrine. And he does so in a fashion very similar to the form of teaching to which we are committed. We have a chapter here that very much lines up with Romans 6 and what we're dealing with in our October conference. I, I find this remarkable.
Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your truth. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study. Thank you, Father, for um, your son and his faithfulness. He didn't just get murdered because they were jealous. Father, he laid down his life in our place. He accepted your judgment for our sin. And I thank you for that. And I thank you because he did that, Father, I can now receive his righteousness in place of my own. And Father, it's just a joy and a delight to be saved, to have eternal life, and to walk in the newness of life because Jesus died but didn't stay dead. He rose.